Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP supportive view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing anything on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? Today, it's albinism relating to eyes, at least, both oculo, ocular only and oculocutaneous. Yeah, uh, you know, it's really relevant. It's not common by any means. You know, it's very possible, I think, to go through like your whole residency training without having seen a patient with frank albinism, but we need to know about it. It can affect the eyes in a lot of different ways, which we'll review. But first, let's talk about the terminology so that it's clear, because I think it can get confusing between the different types of albinism. There's two broad classes of it. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about what those are? Yeah, it's really just, is this skin involved or is it not? So one category is those where skin is involved, oculocutaneous albinism, which affects your eyes, your hair, and your skin. Or the other category is ocular albinism without the cutaneous part in the name, and that supposedly just affects only eyes. Yeah. Is there a a pathologic difference between them, or is it like a penetrance thing? Yeah, to be honest, I'm not sure how much you need to know this, but it does show up in the path book at the histopathological level. The one with skin involvement, OCA, oculocutaneous, has reduced melanin in each melanosome, whereas the one that only affects eyes, OA, ocular albinism, um, just has fewer melanosomes. So OCA has uh, reduced melanin in each melanosome, whereas OA just has fewer melanosomes. Yeah. Interesting difference, and you know, albino, just pure ocular albinism is rare. But those, that's like it's possible to have someone who doesn't have skin involvement but have ocular albinism is what's important, and they can have a lot of the findings that we'll go into now that affect the eyes. Let's start with the iris. Let's kind of sort of go front <laughs> to back for this. Yeah, what color are a patient with albinism's eyes? Usually lighter than they would have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Here, I have a. I, have I done my bit about eye color on the podcast yet? I've got like a, a two minute bit. I'm have a I bit worried. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't, think so. I don't remember if I. Okay. If you've heard this bit before, skip ahead like you know, a minute and 45 seconds. Okay. okay like it, it, here's my explanation of eye color in general. Like how it. Because, you know, there's only kind of one toggle. This is like not specifically to albinism, but to like everything. You know, it's like one toggle, right, for eye color. And that's amount of melanin essentially within the iris. But then you have this whole spectrum of like green, blue, brown, hazel, like all these different colors. So how does that happen? Uh, with like one toggle going through all these different colors. Well, remember the iris anatomy, there's a stroma and then there's an epithelium. And and basically all patients have pigment in their epithelium, but then in their stroma is where the amount of melanin can vary that changes eye color. So you have a lot of melanin. And it, then it'll look like brown or really dark brown, i.e. black, you know, et cetera. Or if there's a little bit, you know, it'll have the kind of a lighter melanin color. So it'd be like light brown, et cetera. But then as you reduce it more and more, if you let's pretend you have no pigment in your iris stroma, then you will have blue eyes. And why is why do your eyes look blue? It's the same reason the sky is blue, sort of. It's scattering of light. So the sky is blue because there's something called Raleigh scattering and um, <laughs> eyes can look blue because something called Tyndall scattering, which is just, it's just about like the size of particles that are scattering light. Like I don't think 
it's in BCC. We don't worry too much about like the difference between those two. But it's basically light will scatter, and then the short wavelength blue will kind of come back out after that scattering, and eyes will look blue. And that's how you get green eyes as well, is there's just enough less pigment that you'll have kind of a light brown effect, like or like a light orange-yellow kind of effect with the blue, and combined they look green. So that's how you get from blue to green to like, you know, like hazel or like light brown to dark brown. And, you know, all with just one kind of um, dial turning how much melanin there is in the stroma. And then the one exception is albinism. And I lied in the beginning. I said all patients have pigment in their iris epithelium. Not true. In albinism, you don't have like any pigment anywhere. So they don't have that pigment in their iris epithelium. So that means light will penetrate through and through and then bounce back. And that's why patients with albinism look like they have like, quote, violet eyes is because you're really seeing red reflex shine through. And then it makes a little bit with that scattering effect in the stroma, a little bit of blue makes that kind of red reflex look violet. And that's basically all eye colors, I think. Thanks, Ben. That was super helpful. Yeah. And, yeah. and and it connected to pop culture. That's why, you know, in if any Game of Thrones nerds out there will remember the Valyrians have like violet, light blue eyes. They all have albinism. What do you know? Oh, yeah. I did not expect <laughs> production values to go into ocular anatomy. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's why, like, at least in the books. I don't know if in the show, I don't think they made like Daenerys have violet eyes, right? I think they were like blue in the show. I don't think they dealt with that. I but think you books. can count on biological accuracy to reduce inconsistency through the seasons. Yeah, like yeah, that, that's that's <laughs> it's probably the details probably dropped off, you know. Anyways, okay, that's eye color. <laughs> Sorry to take half the episode with that. Uh, okay, uh, Andrew, what else can we notice with the iris besides like, this whole color thing? That it just has a lot of transillumination defects, as you'd expect, and that might even let you see the edge of the fake ache lens in much greater detail than you ever would have before. Um, these folks, yeah. this isn't really exam finding, but as you can imagine, without all this like iris pigment to act as a barrier for sunlight to, to help the pinhole effect, more or less, uh, just too much light gets in the eye, and they can be very photophobic. Yeah. Very light sensitive. And just to clarify too, the transillumination defects don't have to be like complete and diffuse. You know, there's like variable presentations. They might have like speckled TIDs if they have like some iris epithelial pigmentation. And you know, that's a cause of TIDs in general, right? Is loss of iris epithelial pigmentation. So that's why surgically you can get TIDs if you know that that layer gets chafed off during surgery or something. Okay. I think it's stuff about the iris, right? <laughs> yeah, the iris will look striking, but Something we don't have down is like even before you, if we're really going like front to back, the first thing you'll really notice is their abnormal eye movements, all those nystagmus movements. But we will get there in a bit. Yeah. And I guess kind of why they have abnormal um, eye movements, which is the fovea, which is really the big area where vision has problems in patients with albinism. And I guess we'll just. Why is that? Well, they have hypoplastic foveas, which if you haven't seen it, means that the fovea doesn't have the normal nice dip that it had the, the pitting that it normally has. It usually is kind of flat looking. Some people will term that fovea plana because um, it's like a flat fovea. It's why they term it that way. And that just tends to happen to patients with albinism. It's also not the only cause of fovea plana, to be clear. You know, we were debating how much of the mechanism we should go into. 
when we were prepping for this episode. But I think hopefully it's a little bit useful to to have at least know the speculation because to be clear, with albinism, from our look at the literature up to like 2022, it's not definitive why albinic patients have foveal hypoplasia. But here's like a framework that I think makes sense, at least to me. The, you know, we all know the retinal vessels start development and grow through gestation. And as they grow, they are repelled by something near the fovea, which is why most adult foveas have a foveal avascular zone. There's something stopping the blood vessels from getting, you know, to the central fovea. The best candidate for that in the literature is something called pigment epithelial derived factor, PEDF, which is made by the retinal pigment epithelium, the RPE, and is basically like a natural anti-VEGF effect that's produced mainly at the fovea. The hypothesis about why some patients have foveal, planar foveal hypoplasia or not, is there's probably a mismatch between how much VEGF is produced when the retinal vessels are developing and how much um, PEDF, this anti-vascular growth factor, is produced. In albinism, it's likely, not definitive, but likely that because of the issues with their pigment epithelium, because of their pigment issues, they make less PEDF, which means that the VEGF is able to drive the vessels into the, into the fovea more than they otherwise should. Just as like an, a counterexample, you can get the um, you know foveal hypoplasia in retinopathy prematurity as well, and that might be the other way around where they just have too much VEGF in ROP, which might help those foveal vascular sorry the foveal vessels penetrate the foveal vascular zone too. Now, why does that have anything to do with having a flat fovea? The hypothesis is that the structure of the fovea may or, or the structural rigidity of the retina may in part be due to the retinal vasculature. So if you don't have vessels in an area like in the foveal vascular zone, as the eye develops and like your intraocular pressure starts to develop, it'll indent that area because it's not as rigid as in the rest of the retina where it has blood vessels. But if you have blood vessels that invade your foveal vascular zone, then it'll become more rigid and it won't indent like it's supposed to as the eye develops. That's a bunch of theory. It may not help you remember any of this. You can also ignore all of that if it's not helpful to you. But to me, it kind of helps remember, like, why do we see this? And like, why do we have to be worried? And the last caveat I'll make is patients can have like a flat fovea and have perfectly normal vision too. Um, we see this a lot in ROP and like there's patients who just for idiopathically have a normal fovea. Unfortunately, we tend to not see that in albinism. Um, you know, they t- tend to have quite poor vision with foveal hypoplasia. So just, just the... The nuances of ovule hypoplasia, which probably could have been its own episode. <laughs> I'll let you decide whether <laughs> to keep that or not later. <laughs> I'm keeping it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. I mean, in that case, I'll mention another weird possible uh, cause of this. While we're just talking about theory anyway, you don't have as much pigment in any of the retinal pigment epithelium. And nobody really knows exactly how that is going to affect the retina above it. But that's another possible uh, rabbit's hole to dive into. Yeah, yeah, migration and stuff, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All that could uh, maybe explain some of the refractive error that is often seen for albinism, albinoid individuals, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, without that drive of having 
normally developing central vision, you know, that, you know, I, I mean, the mechanisms between eye growth and myopia development and like hyperopia development and all that is, is very complicated and not completely sussed out, but not having good central fixation probably affects it somehow. So that's, but, but, you know, to be clear, patients with albinism can have any kind of refractive error, you know, they can be you know, astigmatic, myopic, hyperopic. They tend to have some issue. They tend not to be ametropic. The nystagmus that they end up developing since childhood really affects things too. You can imagine it yeah. just ends up sort of being like uh, the retina never gets a clear image because it's always blurry. So, um, yep. Sometimes nystagmus just shows up whenever you have poor central fixation. Yeah. So it tends to be pendular if you need to remember which kind of nystagmus, a pendular nystagmus. And I think the first time you see a Patient with albinism, it's quite striking. It'll be like easy to remember. You know, it's like very common in, in patients with albinism. And along with that is strabismus. They tend to have strabismus, you know, to go along with all these things too, but they don't have to. Okay. And then even further back, there's another odd thing uh, that, that happens with their optic pathway. All the way back you to the occipital lobe. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is weird. Um, the chiasmal pathway. With the decussation of nerve fibers leading to roughly 50 50. Like, you know, once the temporal side of your field, those nerves go over, those fibers decussate to the contralateral part of the brain. And same with the nasal fibers. That's usually a 50 50 split. But in albinism, there's over decussation, where it could be, uh, I think, uh, less 50 50, much more asymmetric. And through <laughs> uh, sort of Written in a hand wavy way, everything we've read about it says this can contribute to lack of stereopsis, more strabismus, and even maybe be related to some of the nystagmus issues. Hard to know what that's all about. I feel like I believe it the most that it contributes to stereopsis issues if like suddenly your brain is wired just unevenly for your different parts of your visual field. But you can even see this, the BCSE takes pains to point out, you can even see this on a visual evoked potential, where normally, you know, one light flash evinces sort of symmetric uh, responses on both occipital lobe sides, left and right. But uh, for an albinism patient, a VEP would show an asymmetric response in the occipital response. Yeah, I don't know when you would do yeah. like I, you know you're not going to diagnose albinism with the VEP, but I, I suppose it's important to know if you're doing a VEP for another reason and you're like seeing this finding, it's good to know that's normal. Yeah, and just a like a small clarification, it's not quite 50-50 splitting. It's like you know depending on which textbook you read, like forty-seven fifty-three splitting, which is why like optic tract lesions can give you like a slight you know. It's like the explanation for why you can get if you have an optic tract lesion, you can get an APD. Because there's like a slight difference between the yeah. the pupil responses. Anyway, very it's a couple percentage point difference, and the different VCSE books disagree on how much a percentage point difference it is. Some of them say it's like forty five to fifty five. Some say it's like forty seven to fifty three. It's it's a very small difference, but in <laughs> albinism, it's a much larger difference. That's why I said so. Sort of fifty fifty at normal. Yeah, baseline. it's like ish. Yeah, just like to clarify. Yeah, yeah, it's it's basically fifty fifty. There's like a couple points different. That no, the BCSC can't agree on what that is, but albinism the, the is the last way less symmetric. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I, I bet it may, you know, if they had an optic tract lesion as well, I bet they would also have a much more prominent APD. But I don't know. 
uh, iWiki last... says albinism is up to 90% asymmetry. So that's a Holy lot. smokes, compared to 4753, yeah. that's a big <laughs> difference. That's a big difference. The, the last thing we didn't mention, this is just an exam finding, is you know if they don't have RP pigmentation, then their retina is going to look way different. Like I encourage everyone to take like you know look up a picture of like maybe like an optos photo or something with an, a patient with albinism. Uh, it, it just looks completely different from a normal retina. Why? Because the, R, the RP doesn't have as much pigmentation, and normally that pigmentation filters out the choroid. But without the RP, you'll be able to see the choroid like. You know, you, you know, in the full day, and um, you'll see like a ton more vessels. And I think it doesn't mean much in terms of diagnosis, but it does mean something in terms of um, helping you appreciate what the choroid anatomy normally looks like when you can't, which you can't see in most patients without imaging techniques like ICG or something. And is it uh, the only clinical reason this matters? Is just don't ask me why. No, but it's really hard to get laser uptake. In an albinotic retina, if they have like holes or a detachment or something, so. Um, <laughs> that but that's why God created cryotherapy. All. Oh my god! Yeah, it's horrible, but but cryotherapy is great uh, in albinotic patients if they have a retinal detachment. Isn't that just because there's no pigment to soak up the thermal laser? Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to get it to soak to get laser uptake. So, yeah, I recommend it. And the cryo works; like it'll cause adhesion. <laughs> Cryo's there's miserable out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, but they're out. You know, usually they detach. They're like. Younger people, you want to just KO? Dude, cryo is half the reason I didn't go into retina. It's just like, I don't want any business oh. of that. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. The, the My fellows will tell you that like I'm addicted to cryo. Uh. <laughs> like cryo is so... Like any retina issue, like, oh, we could probably just cryo that. It's okay. Don't think about it too hard. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love cryo, but yeah, it's got its issues for sure. And like, you know, like another total side note, because of that pigment differentiation, if you have a patient who has a retinal detachment, it's so hard to find the tears because you don't. Have oh that. gosh! <laughs> so yeah, it's so. Hard I already feel like tears. I jump at straws with this. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Anyways, okay, that's all like not BCSE stuff. I just figure you know maybe no, no, you're on call. You have this issue. Real world. Don't feel bad. Like if you're a resident, don't feel bad if you can't find the holes in a patient with albinism. There, like you should be able to find the detachment. There, the there is still one BCSE thing that's going to be super testable, which is the genetics of this stuff, right? Yeah, but. Yeah, I, not done yet. I think Ben, you've simplified this smorgasbord of genetics like types into basically two main categories. Uh, thank goodness for yeah. you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, there's like a bunch of different subtypes. I don't think they're really helpful for BC, um, for OCAPs of the board. Yeah, they're not going to make you go uh, like OCA type seven versus one or something. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's important to know the genetics of OCA, which again is the one that affects. Eyes, hair, and skin, and then OA, which just affects the eyes, ocular albinism. So OCA, which affects everything, is tends to be autosomal recessive. And within that, I think there's two categories that are worth knowing about because I, 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 there are probably test questions that will come up regarding them, um, and they have to do with the protein tyrosinase, which is important in the melanosome, the like melanin production pathway, which we're not going to go like into deep um, depth about. Um, but it's either tyrosinase positive, which means that they have still have tyrosinase, but it has difficulty penetrating into the melanosomes. So it's like a tyrosinase that, for what like one mechanism or another, isn't working well with this upstream or downstream tyrosinase, or tyrosinase negative, which they don't have, they just don't make it, or they don't make a functional copy, and those patients have much more severe OCA. So if you had to pick, you want 
at least they still have tyrosinase, even if it doesn't work as well. Tyrosinase is positive, and tyrosinase negative tends to be more severe. And there's different subtypes of each, but it's not worth going into. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, all autosomal recessive. What about ocular albinism, uh, Andy? Ocular, ocular albinism <laughs> is not autosomally recessive inherited, but it's instead X-linked inherited. And I think I try to remember that based on ocular albinism seeming less severe of a condition because it's just your eyes, not your hair or your skin. And autosomal recessive conditions seem more severe in general to me, so that seems to fit with the oculocutaneous albinism, whereas the X-linked, usually that's a little more mild of a genetic inheritance. It's more of a common one. Um, you can imagine if this genet if this uh, genetic hit is passed down a little more easily through X-linked uh, inheritance, that the problem itself should be less severe correspondingly. Yeah. So OCA, autosomal recessive, OA, X-linked, long story short. Yeah. Okay, the last thing we'll go into is that there are three syndromes that we should know about that also present with albinism that aren't in the categories of the genetics we just talked about. Angie, do you want to give us the first one? Sure. So uh, this one is called Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome. It is autosomal recessive. And mostly involves platelets, disorders of platelet uh, function, but also has pigment problems, hence the albinism. There's also uh, a lot of pulmonary issues. And I see this is how Ben set things up for me. I was supposed to talk about the alliteration, platelets, pigment problems, pulmonary problems. And uh, that really helps because most test questions about this are in the question stem, they'll mention that they're probably going to be Puerto Rican, of Puerto Rican descent. Uh, though the caveat here, maybe also in Swiss, uh, Swiss people too, Ben? <laughs> yeah, it's really annoying. Like I, 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 So when I was a resident, I only remember Puerto Rican, and then I was reading more about this as I was prepping for the episode. Apparently it's fairly prominent in Swiss populations too. Those darn Swiss, always messing up our... The Ben uh, Young mnemonics. mnemonics. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this is not my mnemonic. This is like, yeah, like the four P's of Hermansky-Pudlock, I think, are, uh, I wish I, I could have claimed I invented. But yeah, platelets pigmentation, pulmonary issues, which is interstitial lung disease, if you have to know it. And then tends to be Puerto Ricans, plus a darn Swiss. <laughs> I guess that Swiss can be the S at the end of four P's, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 I don't know. Okay, that's Hermansky-Pudlock. But yeah, that definitely could be like its own discrete question. So I would definitely try to commit that one to memory. Another one is uh, Chedi Kigashi disease, which can give you a classically silvery hair and uh, you know albinism, oxidative albinism, like we talked about, and severe pyogenic infections that tend to be lethal and can come with because we, I think it's through these infections, neurologic problems, coagulation defects. Mucosal defects like gingivitis, oral ulcerations, periodontal disease. Yeah, it's it's like a, basically they have a, a big problem with their neutrophils that leads to like all these you know pyogenic infections, um, and then for some reason also can lead to like albinism type findings. The 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 mechanism I think we had to learn this for step one. The mechanism is abnormal protein tra- trafficking, leading to dysfunctional fusion of vesicles and failure to transport the lysozymes. Uh, sorry, lysosomes to help you know just destroy things within neutrophils and such. So, 
Chedi Kagashi, it's basically a ton of infections and they can have albinism too. So if you meet an albinitic patient that's very young and they're getting infections, they don't have a reason for it, then maybe think about getting a, a workup for Chedi Kagashi. I think it's a takeaway for that. For well, One more. Yeah, for the next and last one we'll talk about, I had to look up what piebald meant again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which, which is like the thing that sticks in your memory the most for this last one, which is Wardenburg syndrome. Uh, because this is the one that's always referred to with the forelock of hair, white forelock of hair. Um, I guess if you had a horse that was like, I don't know, calico or whatever, a calico, a calico cat could be said to be colored in a piebald distribution. A piebald horse would just have patchy areas of different color on its coat. So a piebald uh, hair for a patient is usually in Wardenburg syndrome going to manifest with just a tuft of hair. Boy, I just had to suppress like a super nerdy allusion to X-Men characters. Anyway. No, don't, don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. Nope. Give it not, not going. It. <laughs> Can't do it. Uh, you don't have to even fill that with your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners. Um, so that's not the only thing. It, it, oh, sorry, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. What else is there? Besides they have this interesting kind of hair or skin. Yeah, they're like, they have albino hair and just like one patch of hair for it. But of course, they can also have uh, heterochromia. This can affect their iris. And usually it is uh, just so distinctly one iris is lighter colored than the other eye's iris. Um, Apparently, their nose also has a broad nasal root or something. And a fifth of them are deaf. Yeah. And um, they tend to, this is, I think, in the plastics textbook, which I didn't include in our script. I think this is in the, the plastics textbook that they have um, their inner canthi are wi- more widely displaced. So they can look like they have like a broad nose, but like their, their inner canthi are more, you know, are, are, are further apart. Um, my, uh, but that's, I, I like remember that was like a question on something. I don't think I can specify what, but like th- there was some question about that. So, like Wardenburg, w- Wardenburg is spelled with two A's, just you know, W A A Wardenburg, Wardenburg, Wardenburg. Um, and I kind of remember that, like, can't I think? I think about like the two A's like being pushed apart and like the eyes being kind of pushed apart. It's like a little mean, but that's, that's how So like, like in my head, it's always W a dash a like Wardenburg syndrome. That probably helped literally no one else, but that's how I remember. Wait, can't I has one uh, a in it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But they, you have two can't I because, Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you didn't know, okay. typically, Oh man! Yeah, it's it's a it's not a helpful thing. But that's how I it just like it's stuck in my head that the two A's are getting pushed apart. So it's like the can't die are getting pushed apart. Or okay, <laughs> that's all the speculation um, <laughs> that we have about albinism and like the things. I hope we highlighted that we need to know. Should we go do like a super quick run through Sans speculation? Okay, review <laughs> sounds good. So uh, um, yeah, I can start with the terminology. There's Two broad categories, oculocutaneous albinism, which affects eyes, hair, and skin, and is uh, has melanin but is just reduced in each melanosome and is usually autosomal recessive inherited. And then there's ocular albinism, which affects eyes only, has melanin but just fewer melanosomes, and is usually X-linked inherited. 
Their irises are usually very light or violet in color. They can have translimitation defects and photophobia. They have a hypoplastic fovea, which can result in nystagmus, um, refractive error, uh, and strabismus most likely. And um, and they have this weird postchiasmal uh, over-decussation of their optic nerve pathway. And the most obvious thing that you'll see right away, pendular nystagmus, likely related to that hypoplastic fovea also. The syndromes you need to remember that can pop up with albinism are Hermansky-Pudlock, which has issues of platelets, pigmentations, pulmonary issues, and it tends to be in Puerto Ricans or the Swiss. The other, the other syndrome that's even more dangerous to life is Chediak-Higashi, which has a problem with lysosomal storage and trafficking, which leads to a lot of uh, neutrophilic deficiencies and in trouble fighting off infections. And then Wardenberg syndrome uh, causes patchy depigmentation, so you can get like heterochromic irises, uh, and a fifth of them tend to be deaf for some reason. Well, not for some reason. Pigmentation, um, our, our, RP, not RP, melanin pigmentation is important for middle ear function. So. Oh, yeah. Or it might be inner ear function. Is it middle or inner ear function? Uh, eh, eh. It's important for ear function, and I've tried to look into the explanation for that, and it's like very bad. Don't worry about it, Ben. Darn it, ENTs. Don't worry. We are eyes for ears. We are not ears for eyes. Forget it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Your ears for eyes can start their own podcast. If you like this episode, a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found it is extremely helpful. Oh, I forgot to mention that last time. But yes, thanks, everybody, and thanks for coming back along with us. All right. Bye. Take care.